Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 893. If you'd like to turn there. We are in John chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him in? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that the prophet, that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. If you were here last week, we... Uh... We looked at the account that comes just previous to this in John chapter 7, where Jesus is uh, hesitant to go to Judea, and in fact doesn't give in to the beckoning of his brothers to go and to make himself manifest. In other words, go there, Jesus, and perform the miracles that you've been performing. Do it in a place where it will really be visible. Come out of the closet, if you will, we talked about last week. And Jesus' response to his brothers was, no. And yet, after they went, he followed them, and he did go to Jerusalem. And we broke that down and asked some questions of the scripture, which we should. And I hope you do when you look at passages like that. But one of the things that I think is apparent in that passage is that the brothers um, were not about Jesus' glory at this point. They were about their own glory. They knew that Jesus was unique. Uh, There was no doubt about that. They, They didn't really doubt his miracles. They didn't doubt the things that he had performed. And they knew that they were connected to power in a way that could benefit them. And so, in a sense, they were trying to manipulate Jesus for their own ends, for their own purposes. And the bottom line of that is they just did not see. They did not see who Jesus was. In fact, the Scripture says, this is, this is the, the way Scripture just lays it out. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his own brothers believed in him in the sense of really seeing who he was. Really seeing his glory. We've talked about glory as we began the service. They didn't see that. We talk a lot here at Richland about seeing. 
Um, I really think that is what happens when we come to life in Christ. We see something. We begin to see Christ as He is. Not completely, not fully, but we get, begin to see His glory. And they didn't see that part of it. They were about, as I said, their glory. And one of the statements that we made last week is this, that love of worldly glory blinds us to the beauty of Christ. And that's true. And that's what was happening here. They did not see the beauty or the glory of Christ. They were blind to it. Now this morning, we're going to look on a little in that passage. We didn't read it all. We didn't read all the intervening portions there in John 7. But one I want you to look at that we didn't read begins to give you kind of the context of what we did read about and what we're going to talk about. But if you go to verse 31 through 30. Six, you begin to get a little of the feel of what's starting to happen around Jesus here. Um, he did go to Jerusalem. He did go into the temple. He did teach in the temple. And the reason we said that he didn't go initially but went later was that he was not on the agenda of his brothers, but he was going by the agenda of his father in heaven. And he was going at his beck and call, certainly not the beck and call of his brothers. But as he went and began to declare more uh, about who he was and, and all of those kinds of things, the, something starts to stir in the crowd. You find it in verse 31. It says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, they were recognizing the miracles and the signs, but they were beginning to see that they were more than that. There was something more to Jesus than that. And the scripture says they believed. But then it goes on in verse 32 and it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. You can see the tension growing here. You can see how it's building here now in John chapter 7. And we're going to walk now through the book of John up through Easter. And again, continue to lay out chronologically the life of Christ. But here we see this movement in people's hearts and, and some of the people beginning to see the glory of Christ here. So what does Jesus do? Some didn't see. Some were out to arrest him. His brothers didn't yet see. Some were starting to see. So what does Jesus do? He just continues to declare more of who he is. He just continues to declare of why he's come. I think we can learn from that much. In fact, it's part of why our existence statement says we exist to magnify Christ. Um, in this sense, Jesus was magnifying himself. Now, for me to magnify myself would be wrong. But for God to let us see who he is is the best thing for us. And Jesus was just showing who he was and why he came. And for us, the answer is the same. For, for people who don't see or people who are just starting to see, what, what ought we to be about? We ought to be about just lifting up Christ, just, just trying to give people a better picture because everything in the Christian life is about seeing. You, you come to life, you come to faith by seeing and you grow in that faith by seeing and savoring. Um, so if this morning 
in a, in a gathering like this. There are people at all different stages. There are people certainly probably here who, who, who don't yet see anything of the glory of Christ, just like the brothers. They, they just didn't see it. So what's the answer? Continue to lift up Christ. There are others here who are beginning to see the glory of Christ. What's, what, what's the answer? What do we do? Continue to lift up Christ. Continue to display more of His glory so that people will savor Him more and more. So this morning, we look at what Christ just kept doing. And uh, what He kept doing was telling Him why He came. Now, look at how He does it. Look at what He does here. You already know that He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Booze, if you will. They called it sometimes. And it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. There's a, there's a sense in which he cried this out. He declared it. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But he just declares, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And he was referring to himself here in this particular text. And what he was really saying, and you have to get the context and the connotation of it and when it happened. It happened on the last day. There's no, it's no secret that he's, the, the writer says on the last day of the feast. was The feast was coming to, to the end. Jesus stands up and he says, in essence, I am the fulfillment of all that this feast points to. That's really what Jesus was saying here. I am the fulfillment of to which this feast has been pointing. And really all of the, the Old Testament has been pointing to, but particularly the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now that particular feast, and there were a number of them, but the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was set up in Leviticus chapter 23 for the children of Israel. It was a way in which they were to remember how God had delivered them out of Egypt. So they wouldn't forget what God had done and how He had saved them from the bondage of Egypt and from the Egyptians and provided for them. And one of the things that he had provided for them was water. Remember, they began to grumble and complain and and he provided water for them. And so Jesus likens himself in that text to the water, to the fulfillment of all that those feasts mean. He was saying, in essence, I am that saving power. I am that provision now among you here. Um, One of the things that strengthens my faith probably as much as anything in the truth of this book is how again and again and again we see in the New Testament the commentary on how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Particularly in the book of John. Uh, numerous times uh, it, is, it is reiterated to us. In fact, we began the service with it this morning. When we began in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt. It tabernacled among us. 
God came and lived and tabernacled among us. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle was and what it pointed to. Uh, A little later, if you look, walk with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2 and verse 19. Here again, we see the same kind of thing being laid out. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now what... What did the tabernacle and what did the temple represent to the children of Israel? It was the place where they were to meet God. The temple first, but then after the destruction of the temple, in the, um, or the, the tabernacle, they, they were to meet God in the, the I should say, I said that wrong. They had the tabernacle first and then the construction of the temple. They were to meet God in that. That's where they met him. That was their worship place place where they dwelt with God. And so what Jesus is saying is, in John chapter 1, or what John is saying about Jesus, is that the, the Word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. And Jesus said, destroy this temple on the third day, it will rise. He's saying to the people, I now am the place where you meet God. That's what Jesus was declaring. That's what John was declaring. Jesus is the place where we meet God. Another place in John chapter 3 and verse 14. Look at what it says there. Speaking of Moses. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, another picture of Old Testament picture that was pointing to Christ. Moses lifts up the serpent, but that serpent is representative of another that's going to be lifted up, and that's Christ. And he's to be lifted up. And so, as John is writing there, he's, he's showing us how in the Old Testament picture is now fulfilled in Christ. Hope and salvation offered in the Old Testament through ceremonies and symbols and sacrifices are now offered in the life and death of Christ, is what Moses is saying. Everything else is foreshadowing. Everything else is a shadow of what is to come. The Old Testament is a shadow. A shadow that becomes to fulfillment in Christ. In Jesus. Another place is John chapter 6 and verse 32. Here again, Jesus, just before we come to chapter 37, says something about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he describes what that true bread is. He said, I am the bread of life in verse 35. So even the manna, even the manna that that the children of Israel got every morning and collected up was representative of Christ. He is that bread. There were always pictures um, that the 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 Bible is one story. And the more that we begin to see the connection of that, the more I think it strengthens our faith in Him. And so everything else but Christ was a shadow. Everything else is a picture. Even even the institution of marriage is a picture. Marriage here on earth among a man and a woman is a picture of something else that's coming. The Bible again and again gives us pictures. And that picture culminates in Christ. And the text today, what Jesus is declaring when he stands up 
now at the Feast of Booths. He's saying, look to me. Look to me. Look to me as the fulfillment. There was no doubt that as Jesus went to Jerusalem, he was declaring, look to me. And then he gave an invitation. An invitation to all who would look to him. I want to walk through that with you this morning as we see it here in the scripture. Look at what he said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Break it down a bit with me. If anyone. Just stop there. If anyone. Jesus was speaking to his enemies here. He was speaking to the Pharisees. He was speaking to the chief priests. He was speaking to his own brothers who didn't yet believe in him. He was speaking to the multitudes. If anyone, even those who oppose me, that's, that's the invitation, anyone. And then he goes on to say, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, what, what is that all about? What, what is the thirst about? The invitation goes out. If any of you thirst, if any of your souls are thirsty, that's, that's the condition. Thirstiness of our soul. Thirstiness has to do with two things, really. It, 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 it is about need. You sense a need in your life. Thirsting is about a need. Maybe, maybe the, the need that is, in a physical sense, the one that is the most excruciating when you feel it. You can go much longer without food than you can without water. If anyone thirsts, if anyone feels a need, that is a prerequisite to the invitation that I give you. And I think if we look at that word thirsting, really what thirsting is, is really about is, is if anyone sees a need, sees a need and begins to see me as the remedy. That whole idea of magnifying Christ that people might see. We started out by saying seeing something. Christianity is about seeing something. It's about seeing the glory of Christ. It's about feeling a need rising up in our soul and seeing Him as the one who can meet the need. You can't come to Him except you thirst. And if you do thirst, the invitation is, come. If there's a thirstiness in your soul, you'll not find it satisfied anywhere else but in Him. Unfortunately, there's lots of people in lots of places who feel the thirst. They feel the ache in their soul, but they don't recognize where to find the remedy for the ache. So they turn to all kinds of things to kind of satisfy that soul thirst. And the problem is, it won't satisfy long term. There are things that you can turn to, and it seems for a moment it may quench your thirst. But the problem is, you get thirsty again. And again and again. Jesus promises if you come to Him, you need not ever thirst again. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't feel a thirst, but you can go back and it can be quenched. He is the thirst quencher. He's the one looking to Him. 
So the invitation is, if anyone thirsts. Do you thirst? Have you pushed beyond the wrong kinds of remedies for the thirst? One of the most gracious things God can do in our lives is, is cause that thirst to be unquenchable. To be so intense in our lives that we quit turning to substitutes. We quit turning to short-term fixes. And Jesus declares, if anyone thirsts, come. Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. I think, I think this is just a picture of what it means to believe in Christ. The invitation, if anyone begins to thirst, they begin to come to him. And they begin to see who he really is. They begin to realize the treasure that he is. They come and they drink of the treasure. We would describe it in our existence statement as savoring. They see and they begin to savor. Last week we talked about believing unbelief in the message that we shared. You can get it. It's on the, on the website if you want it. But believing unbelief. And, and in a sense the brothers believed... They believed in the miracles, but they still lived in unbelief. And we looked at other portions of Scripture that would have the same connotation. They seemed to have believed, but they still lived in unbelief. What, what was the difference? They, they, they saw Jesus, but they really didn't see His glory. They didn't see Him as the treasure. They didn't see Him as, as the soul-quenching person that He was. Believing means we begin to turn to Him. And we begin to see the treasure. And we let that treasure quench the thirsting of our soul. We begin to savor it. Part of belief is savoring it. The the brothers didn't savor Jesus. They wanted to use Jesus. They didn't see the glory of Jesus. They saw their own glory. But as we get our eyes opened, as we begin to see the glory of Christ... Then we begin to savor Christ. We begin to see the treasure that He is. That's why I like the word treasure when we talk about belief. We begin to see Him for who He is. Truly for who He is. Now in one sense the brothers saw, but they didn't see who He was. So Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Drink. Be satisfied in Me. And then it, and then it says... If that happens, if anyone comes and they thirst and they come and they drink, something else will happen. And one of the evidences of, of life in Christ, one of the evidences of, of, of true belief is that we begin to see the treasure of Christ. He really begins to become a joy in our life. Not, not fully, we don't, we, haven't, we don't arrive fully, but we begin to experience the joy of letting Him be our treasure. And then that joy is completed as we begin to share that message. And here the scripture says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is an overflow aspect of of really seeing to the point of savoring and treasuring that causes us, because it is a treasure, to, to share that treasure. In fact, our joy is completed as we share that treasure. That's the picture here, I think, of what it is to follow Christ. Picture of what it is to truly believe in Him. Seeing, savoring, 
and declaring. All of it wrapped up in this passage. Now, C.S. Lewis once talked about a foolish thing. I want to spend the rest of my time today talking about this. A foolish thing. And the thing that he called foolish was somebody looking at Jesus and, and all that he says in the scriptures and saying he was a great moral teacher. He says that's a truly foolish thing to call Jesus merely a good moral teacher. In fact, he goes on to reiterate that. We've shared it before. Many of you know this. But Lewis goes on to say that's, that's impossible. That's impossible for Jesus to be merely a good moral teacher and not God is the inference of that. In fact, the only way that, that, that Jesus could be that would be to truly be God because of the fact of, he, of what he declared, the things he said. We're going to look at that in a moment. Jesus declared that he was God. He affirmed that he was God again and again. And so it's a truly foolish, foolish thing to say he was merely a moral teacher, a good moral teacher, but not God. In fact, Lewis would say, Jesus can only be one of three things. He either was a liar, that he just blatantly lied about who he was and what relationship with him meant. He, he knew it was wrong. He just was a deceiver, which you couldn't be a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers are not liars, not blatant liars. The second thing, he could have been a lunatic. He could have been delusional. He could have thought he was God. There have been lots of people who've come on the scene who thought they were God and really believed it. And so the things they declared they believed, they just weren't true. So he could be a liar, a blatant liar. He could be a lunatic. He could just be deceived. Or the only third option is that he's Lord. But good moral teacher is not number four. It's impossible. Now look at why it's impossible. Look, I want to I drive this home as we close. Look at John chapter 7. Look at what's going on here, particularly at verse 28. This is why you can't say that. Look what Jesus did there. This, this comes now after the account of, of uh, not even his brothers believing, after he goes into the temple, after he teaches there in the temple. But in verse 28, he says, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus says something incredible here. He says it, and it's what riled up the religious teachers. This is, they knew what he was saying. He was in essence saying, and he said it again and again all over Scripture. If you don't receive me, you don't know God. That's what he's saying. Listen, listen to other places. Let me just read some of them. John 5.23 Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John chapter 5 and verse 42 I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. John 6.45 Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 8.19 You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, 
you would know my Father also. And John 8.42, if God were your Father, you would love me. Those are things Jesus directly said. Now, I've said this, I've said this countless number of times. So I'm repeating it, but it bears repeating. You don't have to accept that is true. You do not have to accept the words of Jesus as being true. That's really what, what Lewis was saying. You don't, you don't have to accept it was true because he could have been lying. He could have been a lunatic. You don't have to accept it. But what you can't do is call him a good moral teacher and say he wasn't God. Because he said he was God. And he said, in fact, if you don't receive me, you don't know the Father. It's important that we see the issues. Again, you don't have to accept the issues. You don't have to buy into the issues. That's a part of seeing. But we can't let people not know what the issues are. And our day and age today wants in some ways to, to, to accept Jesus, but really not accept what he taught. And what he taught was, if you reject me, you don't know God. That's not very popular in our pluralistic age. But that's what Jesus said. That's what he was saying here in this text. You don't see. You don't see God. You don't know God if you don't receive me. The issue was Christ. He made it the issue. Now, how does that relate to us? Again, you don't have to accept it. But that's what Christianity teaches. That's what Jesus taught. Don't let him change it. If you want to reject him, reject his claims. Don't reject a straw man of his claims. Don't, don't reject something that really isn't what he claimed. Look at what he claimed. Look at what he said. And again, it can be rejected. But reject what he said, not what somebody else said he said. Where it really meets the road is when you're dealing with a Muslim or with a Buddhist or with a Hindu or with someone of the Jewish descent, Jewish faith. Really what Jesus is saying is, if, if you don't receive me, you don't know the Father. Now he was speaking to the Jewish people. You don't know God. The claims of Christ are You come to God through me. You come to God by a thirst in your soul and by coming and drinking of me. Now you understand how unpopular that is in our world today. It is incredibly unpopular. In fact, um, there's, there's kind of a movement today. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but today this whole idea of, of saving Christmas and all of those kinds of things all those things that rise up, um, I understand what they're what they're saying and what they're what they're hoping for. But in some ways, in some ways, I'm not sure it's the best way to go. In some ways, I think we need people to really know what Jesus said. And 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 there is a sense in which when people really hear what he said, they have to make a decision. They have to choose. They have to decide. In that regard, 
And, and I fear sometimes that, that we get straw men raised up in, and get the issues clouded. It may be that some of those battles may clear up the issue that Jesus does divide. He does divide. Now, we shouldn't be the divider. We shouldn't cause a division, but he does. Jesus declares, as I just read, and he declared it to those that were around him. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know, unless you know me, unless you receive me. So what do we do for a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew? We do it with, with love. We do it with, with every effort not to make us the issue, but to make Christ the issue. But we present Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners as the only hope. We, we present the true Christ. We present Him. And then there is a decision that has to be made. Um, I think we can go back to this, back to last week. And, and I think this is a good place for us to see it. Remember last week, we looked at the passage where it said Jesus wasn't going to go with his... He wasn't going to go with, um, with his brothers. He wasn't going to go on their timetable. He wasn't going to go to Jerusalem. Now, he did go, as we said. But one of the things he said to them is this, when, when they ask him in verse 6, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. That's what Jesus said. Why does it hate him? Why does the world hate Jesus? Because of what we just said. Because he divides, in the sense. Jesus' declaration. Jesus declared, No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he taught. That's what he said. That's what he declared. And, and again, you don't have to believe it. You can choose to be some other faith. You can choose to be no faith. But just make sure that you don't get Christianity wrong. That's the issue. That's what made Jesus so controversial. That's why they hated him. The world hates that. The unbeliever hates that. It recoils at that. Except God begins to work on their heart and open their eyes to see. You see, that message is not glorious to our world. That message is hated. So, Jesus declares, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God has to open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Do you see the issue? If this morning you see the glory of Christ, be grateful, be thankful. If today you're not sure you see the glory of Christ, look at that Christ. Look at that Jesus. Keep looking at Him. Look at the Gospel. Look where the glory of God is most concentrated, in the cross. Look. Look and ask God to help you to see His glory. That's the issue. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Jesus is declaring. 
when he stood up and he cried out, If anyone, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, what I've said today are hard things, but they're true things. They are true things. They are true. Jesus divides. Either you love it today or you hate it as you sit where you're at. You either love it or you hate it. If you find that you don't love it, but you want to, you want to look to Christ. Look to Him. And for those who love it, look at it. Keep looking at it. More of the glory of Christ. More of all that He is. Let's stand together and sing. afflictions and what he meant by that is that that we need to go out and present the sufferings of Christ to the world in our willingness to give our lives away for that message we don't go with a club and beat people over the head we go declaring the message of Christ 
Jesus said all of that and he went to the cross. You see, that's where the glory was most concentrated, in the cross, in his suffering, not in his coercion. A message like that in the wrong hands is really dangerous. But that message came from one who then went in just a few days to a cross. Don't ever forget that. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to to see more of your glory and to savor that glory, to treasure that more and more so that we can't help but share it. Oh God, help us. Help us, Lord, to help others to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. You're dismissed.